Welcome to a bonus episode of 12 Songs of Christmas. Usually, I'm in your feed on Thursdays, but we'll have a few bonus episodes this season because I simply have too much to get to between now and Christmas. I've got a few months worth of interviews in the can already, and I'm still booking a few more because the subjects are too good to say no to. I'll be back in your feed on Thanksgiving, but today I want to share a crossover podcast with my friends at Houdat Jedi, a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of pop culture podcast as it scratches Aaron, Fredo, and Dave's itches to talk about the New Orleans Saints and Star Wars. Normally they talk about these things, and when they want to stretch out, they drift into superhero comics and movies. This week, they invited me to join them for the truly improbable combination of the Saints, Star Wars, and Christmas music. I had a great time on the show, and it was fun to talk about Christmas music with people who don't obsess over it like I do, or live inside it the way musicians do. We talked about the ins and outs of versions of Christmas songs, and in the process, made a few connections you might not expect back to their home turf. I'm sharing this because we had a lot of fun, and if Star Wars and or The Saints are also in your fan profile, you may want to check out Hootat Jedi the rest of the year. I'm still giving away this year's 2021 listeners-only Christmas mix. Write me at alex at myspiltmilk.com, and I'll send you a copy. I'll be back on Thanksgiving with a regular episode. Talk to you then. Yeah, so we are the Houdat Jedi. I am Aaron, and with me as always is Dave and Fredo. How you doing, guys? Hello. Hi. I'm doing all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And we've got a, uh, a special guest with us tonight um, that we're going to be the bulk of our... It's going to be a different podcast for us. Uh, it's actually going to be light on the Star Wars stuff, which is fine, because that's kind of what... We, you know, we started this podcast not meaning for it to be just about Star Wars, and then it kind of became just about Star Wars. <laughs> um, so it's going to be nice to kind of deviate a little bit, but we've got Alex Rawls with us, um, who is, runs a podcast of his own, The uh, 12 Songs of Christmas. Welcome, Alex. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm looking. I'm enjoying this. I've, I've liked what y'all have done in the past, and that I always look forward to occasions to do sort of crossover episodes with uh, with friends and people who do whose work I enjoy. So, and I figure this will have a different. Uh, we'll we'll have we come from different places, so it should be an entertaining mix. So here's what we need to do, guys. We need to get this. You know, there's always NOLA Twitter tweet-ups. We need to get NOLA podcasting tweet-up. Ah. <laughs> imagine, imagine the four of us and uh, the Saints Happy Hour podcast and uh, uh, and do like one bit and, you know, and others and do one big like super podcast where we're talking about Saints and Star Wars and Christmas songs and a mega cast. You know, yeah, my, my only thing is I'm thinking it'll be kind of like, you remember the Naked Gun when they started introducing all the commentators at the baseball game? And it just keeps going and going and going. And going. It'll be like that. <laughs> That's an all-time great scene. Um, but yeah, Aaron, you sort of sold Alex short, I'd say, because he's also one of the preeminent voices from the music scene here in New Orleans. One of the yeah. preeminent music journalists in our community. Oh, thank you, David. I wanted to make sure that was 
stated up front. Yeah. I, I'm I really excited do, to have him on. Yeah, I also have my website, uh, myspiltmilk.com, where I cover New Orleans music and uh, culture, usually from an indie perspective. So um, this time of year, that Christmas stuff kind of takes over. And uh, like my, my next post is going to be, here's what I'm doing on my Christmas blog. And I've had over the course of the last two or three days, I've had people send me uh, downloadable indie rock Christmas playlists uh, that I'm going to be sharing. So um, these days, I am 90% Christmas. Right on, right on. Uh, yeah, so I, I'll give me a, give me a couple more gigs to get under my belt before you come and see my solo Irish gig. Um, <laughs> every other um, that's been that's been my pandemic uh, thing. I was in an Irish band in uh, Nebraska before I moved to New Orleans, and when I came down here, you know, in my band, I always had a guitar player who would you know strum while I would sing the songs. And then I got stuck with I I didn't I. I couldn't sing the song. So the pandemic hit and that's when I said, well, dang it. I'm going to just learn how to, uh, the six chords that I need on the guitar to play Irish music. And, uh, that's, that's what I've been doing is sitting on my back porch and, you know, drinking beer and playing Irish music. So that's a great project. Um, but, but before I get a journalist out there, yeah. So, um, if I see you show up, I'm going to make sure you don't have anything to take notes. I'll get <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, so before we came on, we were uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, Mardi Gras uh, because it uh, it looked like Fredo had a sippy cup and he actually has a Mardi Gras uh, cup. Uh, uh, Cruel Orpheus, if you want and, to be specific. And uh, so anyway, he said uh, that's what we those are the throws that we need. You know, is adult sippy cups. That's what they need. Uh, I and I, this you know not not a sponsor of this podcast, but did you guys see that Dirty Coast has a Return of the Jedi themed Mardi Gras shirt. It says Return mm-hmm. of the Gras. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm in need of this shirt. I need to go down to Dirty Coast and get that shirt. So um, <laughs> yeah, so that'll be a, that, that's that's on my my, my list. So um, yeah, so okay. Well, anything, oh, well, let's, uh, Big Saints news today. We signed a kicker to the practice squad who was the kicker that we signed after Will Lutz got hurt, who happens to be the kicker that is the son of my former boss. Um, so when I was, when I was again in Nebraska, my superintendent, his son actually, and was that and Brett Maher was actually in uh, my wife's English class. So um, yeah, we saw the news today that we signed a kicker to the practice. Have, have we ever signed a kicker to the practice squad? Maybe in the battle days when we're trying out in the post John Carney, post Gerhardley, Carney, lots of days. Yeah. Like, yeah. like there was a period where we didn't have good kicking, and then Will Lutz magically emerged, and we're like, oh, thank God, we don't have to worry about that again. And here we are again. I'd, I'd say pre Hartley and post Hartley were kind of shaky there for a little while. Speaking so. of which, did you see him on Twitter? Uh, Basically auditioning, he was showing himself kicking field goals at, <laughs> and it was like sixty yards, you know, straight through the uprights. It's like, all right, that's uh, it, I mean, yeah, why not? Why not? Right now, yeah. it's like if you got a pulse and you can kick it straight, then you know, it's <sighs> like, let's go. It's I have been to... twelve. It's been twelve years since 
he had that uh, the the most famous kick for Saints fans. Yeah, I have to say that as horrifying as all of those missed extra points were, I was actually fascinated that at that dis- that shorter range, he could make a ball hook that hard. That like, because <laughs> right? off the foot, they all looked like they were going to hit. And it was somewhere around like eight yards out. He got it to almost go sideways. And yeah. that is a kind of a perverse talent that I respect. <laughs> I just wanted on someone else's team. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. <clears throat> so, yeah, man, I mean, all, all I can think of, well, and then it gets into our receivers. All I can think of is dodgeballs. Somebody catch a GD ball, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but uh, man, I, all yeah. I know is that I would not want to be on Sean Payton's bad side. I wouldn't want to make a mistake and have to go stand by coach. Oh, my Lord. I haven't seen a lot of that in like over the last couple of years, but um, like pre-Super Bowl. I remember he had a real short fuse and there were, there were some real um, dicey situations. I, I love I the, uh, it was uh, mic'd up. It was, and they had Sean Payton and it was like, somebody gave him the wrong chewing gum and he was screaming at people on the <laughs> sideline and some equipment manager was like, Oh, okay. I, I got you coaching. I had to go get you. It's like, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, he just, I wouldn't, I would not want to be, but Troutman after uh, jumping, you know, uh, false start on that uh, two-point conversion is like, oof, oh, man. Uh, I mean, when I was, I was driving back from a work thing and I was listening to the uh, pregame coverage on WWL and they were making the point that the last time the Saints played the Titans, like they went through the list of all the players who weren't going to be playing in the game and they said, oh, about a month ago, it was billed as Derrick Henry versus Alvin Kamara and neither of those guys are going to be here. So this is what we got. Sorry, folks. You know you you were expecting something better. No, we you know we got this. You know we make it do with the best we got, and I think the game kind of reflected that a lot. Just uh, okay, we really don't have much in the way of options here, so we're just gonna make do. I mean, and for a, for such a game, the fact that it came down that close to the to miss extra points says a lot about the team, you know, and the players. The fact that they're still trying out there. They're giving their best, even if their best is kind of like, eh, you know, C plus. Well, you know, the thing I was thinking about, I mean, I had a lot of the same same thoughts. I mean, we we show moments all season where it looks like we can be the team that we all think we see. But you know, like in the Carolina game, there were simply so many injuries and so and so many people out, including coaches with COVID, that it can't be a huge surprise that we went out and flopped. And it's like you realize, okay, yeah, if you take a starting a starting quarterback, starting running back, starting wide out off your offense and I think we're I think we're down down an O-lineman, it can't be a huge surprise that a team <laughs> that is number 1 in the AFC gives you a good game. And yeah. and it still came down to we 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 pointed the field goals, the missed extra points but also had um, had Simeon not just had an aneurysm at the end of the first half the and taken right. taken not one but two sacks to get Ooh. out of field goal range. Had he just taken a knee, we would have had Duck Hook had taking a shot at a at, at a field goal that would have been the difference. 
So, or, or just chucking chucking it out of bounds. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. And then the fumble to start the second half—that was a beaut too. You know. Well, but you know, you get okay, Dave. Let's let's give you a football. I don't care who the person is. You hit somebody that hard in the right place, the ball is going to pop out. So people be mad at, you know, um, at uh, Deontay Deontay Harris. You be mad at him all you want, but it's like he he doesn't. It's not like he drops the ball every time. It's not like Troutman running out of bounds, like you know, with zero seconds left it's like why don't you try to get across the goal line anyway that, that my right. point my point is simply that it's a game of inches as they always say yes well so here's here's my point though because a couple of us played uh, trivia at finn mccool's last night and after the first question um after the first round i'm sorry after the first round um one team like had a gazillion points and everybody else had 10 it was like Everybody else had the same point total. And that's the way the NFL is right now. There are like every, almost everybody's basically in that five and four, you know, it's so, and you look, and I, that's why I'm that right now, this is anybody's, you know, if, if you, if you can be healthy and if you can, you know, be smart, you know, you, you can make some noise. So it's an exciting season, but you know, just look at the way. I mean, the Titans just went through a run where they beat the likes of the Rams and the Giants and the, no, I mean, the Rams and the Chiefs. And uh, they were just, and the Ravens, they were just beating really good teams. And then those teams are going out and beating other really good teams, but then they're also laying eggs. And you're like, okay, you really can't tell who's the really, I mean, they're seven and two, eight and two, but really at this point without Derek Henry, I don't know what, what they can expect, but. It's going to be more of a question like who's the hot, healthy team come the playoffs? Because if you're that, you got a better shot than if you're really good right now. And that's that's always the case. It's always who comes into the playoffs and is healthy, and they get on a little hot streak. That's what happened last year. The, and and the I, Buccaneers were no great shakes, and then they got hot when they needed to. And I can't take credit for this because my this is what my wife said, and she's spot on. Though anybody who thinks the Saints can't make noise and go far in the playoffs with Trevor Simeon has forgotten the name Nick Foles and the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, it, it, you know, whoever that that team was not supposed to win a Super Bowl. So um, anyway, there there you go. So there anyway, go. There's, there's hope, Houdat Nation, but. Uh, um, Hopefully Brett Maher will be healthy and maybe he'll be off the practice squad. I think, what do you think? Brian Johnson's got one more game to prove himself. <laughs> you think Brett Maher was brought in to, to, as kind of like, a, I don't know, the, the understudy to be just standing there in the shadows or do you think Sean's like, this is the guy I want? I don't know. Well, he was already in, in, in the building once already. So yeah. they know what they got with him. All he's got to do is show that he's consistent. Not great consistent yeah right and his job is his job because right. that's really all you want from a kicker yeah. you know you want him to say okay he's going out he's going to make it you know you take points you know you understand when there's wind when there's outdoors bad weather okay you excuse those but everything else you know you, if you're an actually making a uh, professional field goal kicker you should be making your extra points even from as far back as they are well, there you go, folks. You got a lot of the Houdat and the Houdat Jedi podcast tonight. So, uh, <clears throat> but I mean, man, if we didn't, yeah, it's it's just fun to be able to commiserate with uh, other people on this. All right, but let's get in some Star Wars trivia, and then we'll get to some Star Wars news. And Alex has said he's going to uh, 
um, do trivia with us. And so this is from Alex, by the way, this is uh, the Trivial Pursuit DVD Saga Edition. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so that, like I said, it's just episodes one through six. Um, I always take the first question that I see. So sometimes Fredo gets like the one that's on the ACT and sometimes he gets, you know, the question of the day from Sesame Street. So we'll find out. We'll start with Fredo. And so I'm taking this yellow one here. Who whales? I killed them. I killed them all. They're dead. Every single one of them. Should I even pause for uh, comedic or dramatic effect? Uh, Anakin Skywalker. I hate sand. Yeah, it was Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker. All right. So um, let's see here. Alex, we'll go to you. So you see how easy these are. All right. So um, um, <laughs> scanning first for the. You see. No, first I'm not scanning. This is the first one I saw. I was like, should I give this to him? I'm going to give it to you because, I mean, it. You know, you can kind of uh, um, reason it out. How many nostrils grace a Tauntaun's face? Tauntaun back here, but. Oh, uh, uh, so the. I'm going I'm to go three. I don't remember. Wow, it's actually it's actually four. Ah, I thought it was two. Now I got to go find the Tauntaun that I have back here, but it's not like I've stared at a Tauntaun's face all that much. But. <laughs> that was my other possible answer. I was on one of those two, but and I should have gone with symmetry. A nose, even in space, a nose is symmetrical. Well, Star Wars space. I mean, you know, you know, in other sci-fi, there's not always symmetry. Ha- have know, we seen? Like, have we seen a three-nostrilled alien? I've just. Right now, thinking of the three-breasted alien from. But that's three. I guess. I guess it. Uh, yeah, there is a. Yeah, never mind. Um, all right, Dave. Asymmetrical. What planet is Luke on when his mechanical hand is damaged? Oh, Alex, you got the you got the shaft on this one. I'm just saying, but. <laughs> What planet is Luke on when his mechanical hand gets damaged? Um, goodness. Thinking this. Yeah, I probably am. Uh, when I his mechanical he, hand gets damaged. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't have the mechanical hand until the end of Empire Strikes Back. Um, so he has it after that point. I think he gets shot in the hand. On Jabba's sail barge, so I'm going to say Tatooine. You are correct. It is Tatooine. Wow. Like I said, you totally, you totally tried to psych yourself out of that one. Yeah, yeah. I, everybody first, was everybody was nerding out when we got the uh, first shot of Luke's mechanical hand in um, uh, the Last Jedi because it actually had the little scarring thing or whatever on his on his hand. All right, all right. So for me. Who admits to liking only two or three politicians? I'll pause here. And that would be Anakin Skywalker as well. Anakin, there we go. All right. So her brain is now thoroughly wrapped around Star Wars. And we know that a Tauntaun has four nostrils. So we learned something today, kids. 
All right. So, uh, Fredo, we got a little bit of news. Um, yeah. Or do we? Let's uh, maybe take one of those little news bits. Let's just uh, real quick talk about Disney Plus Day. Okay. That, let's start. That was one of your news bits. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of. So, off the top, do you want me to just kind of go over what they announced, what they didn't announce? Because there was a lot. Of- well, I think maybe maybe to talk about it this way is that uh, the the whole theme of our podcast really has been to you know temper expectations, and none of us tempered expectations. At least I didn't. I was expecting all sorts of stuff, and so I'll I'll lead with that. So Fredo, what did we get? Well, depends on hands. What did we get? You got what you had gotten already. <laughs> you know, what was I going to say? I was going to say uh, maybe Dave Kier can splice Willy Wonka going, nothing, you lose. Good day. You lose. Good day, sir. Yeah, no, because you did get the Obi-Wan teaser footage. The first That was teaser. linked the day before. Exactly. So if you had seen it already on YouTube, you had no reason to be waiting. And this kid, the sad part is fans were waiting and waiting. And remember I show you? that everybody was splicing that image from the last season of Clone Wars with Maul going, I've been waiting for Kenobi, why are you here? Yeah. To every other announcement. Because if you're not a Star Wars fan, if you're into Marvel, if you're into Disney, you got a ton of other stuff. If you're a Star Wars fan, Disney Plus Day uh, involved two things. The Obi-Wan teaser trailer footage that wasn't even footage, it was just like pre-production stuff and discussion, which everybody had seen the day before. And the uh, release of the Under the Helmet Boba Fett special that's uh, showing anything into- either. Because I exactly. Know, it, wasn't, it wasn't even a book of Boba Fett special. It was just about. No, it was. Fett. It's about the character. It's about. It was, it was fine, you know. And it was. Okay, so it was funny because uh, Dave sent a private message to us because, you know, here he said, man, they're, here they are talking about the Spurs. And I, I still swear to I'm gonna fire. I'm gonna plug in my DVD player and my Blu-ray player, and I'm gonna put in every copy that I have. I have never heard the Boba Fett Spurs, and then they crank that volume up. You got to admit they crank that volume up to about nine with those <laughs> Spurs clunking around Cloud City, and so I, I still think that was just something that people it was like the big scenes they swear it was there when they saw empire strikes back and then feloni was like hey let's just run with it they did it just to spite you yeah they, they cranked it up but anyway so it was just yeah, but, talk about but in terms of like actual concrete stuff we didn't get i mean what's interesting is we know cassian andrew's coming next year we got nothing we know bad batch season two is coming up we got nothing we know that uh Mandalorian season three is coming out again. Nothing. It was the teaser footage that you'd seen the day before about Obi Wan, and again, not even footage of the show. It was you and McGregor looking at a camera, talking to you, and then a little moment about uh, Kathleen Kennedy telling you about how the rematch of the century is coming between Obi Wan and Darth Vader, and hyping up the return of Hayden Christensen. A few still images, not even still, still drawings of that. What that pre-production footage looks like. It's going to look like, and that's pretty much it. Again, you did, you did see Ewan McGregor uh, and Hayden Christensen training with lightsabers for like about five seconds, right? Yep, yep. They were in the, uh, the again the behind the scenes stuff. It was all behind the scenes footage, pre production footage. It's all it's a hype uh, reel, but you know, no actual footage of the show or anything that we oh. might say. Oh, okay, this is what it's going to be. You know, look like 
like I said, you know, it's, like I said, I, I should have taken my own damn advice and just tempered expectations. But I was ex- I was expecting all it because what was it uh, two years ago when we or no or a year ago year ago when we got like all the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember we were just going, oh my god, they've announced this, they've announced this. It's like this year, there's like, yeah, okay, Star Wars people, you can take a backseat, and that's yeah, and it also shows the arrogance that I have, where it's like Disney Plus equals Star Wars, and the other stuff is like, you know, all fluff. You know what I mean? It, it, it Disney Plus is not all about Star Wars. Um, well, well, here's the thing: like, if you were Marvel, okay, here's all the stuff that got announced and shown. A Disney Plus day, Secret Invasion, She-Hulk, an Agatha Harkness show, a spin-off of One Division, Ironheart, which we kind of knew about, Echo, which is a spin-off of the upcoming Hawkeye, Miss Marvel, Moon Knight with which is Oscar Isaac, Isaac, yeah, right. Uh, they're also going to have uh, Marvel Zombies animated, Spider-Man Freshman Year animated, I Am Groot, which again we kind of knew animated, a season two of What If. We got season two of What If before we got season two of Bad Batch announced. And, of course, they, they announced that they're going to bring back the 1990s X-Men animated show for Disney+, Plus, which I think was the biggest reveal for everybody who's ever seen that show because that was awesome. By the way, so at Trivia last night, Scott Colesby was there, and we, we were talking a little bit about Disney Plus Day, and he was talking about the Marvel stuff. And, and I said, I didn't realize that Oscar Isaac was going to be in this mar- – and. All of a sudden, Brittany, my wife, goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what? We're like, yeah, Oscar Isaac. She's like, okay, wait a minute. You're telling me that in the next year, I'm going to have Oscar Isaac, Ewan McGregor, and uh, Diego Luna? And so she's over the moon with what's And Pedro Pascal. And Pedro Pascal, that's right. I'll tell her that. So anyway. (laughs) I'll leave him off. Uh, Yeah, it was a big big Marvel thing. And I... I even like the, but here's the thing with the Marvel stuff, they actually showed, even if they only showed like five seconds of something, they had something to show. You can't tell me that the star Wars people didn't have five seconds of, you know, even if all you showed was like the back of Darth Vader's head, like they did in that rogue one teaser, you know, it'd be like, that would have sent the nerds off into that. that, They would have been fine for the rest of the year. Um, Right. And the book of Boba Fett stuff. Yeah, we got a trailer. I guess the week before, so we shouldn't be mad about that. But, but yeah, it was kind of a kind of a fizzle. So, we talked about um, we had a re- an episode of a couple of months back where we were talking about the marketing in re- relation to Star Wars and are we getting enough? What's is there are is is there something wrong with it per se? And I, I think like it's. It's been about a year since we got anything of any sort of substance. You guys were talking about last year's deal, and um, there was a trailer for uh, Mandalorian season two a year ago. Um, I'm no, I know that we got a trailer or two for Bad Batch. Um, yeah, we got a little but, teaser for Rogue Squadron, ironically enough. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and it just. There's just not a lot to sink your teeth into if you're a Star Wars fan. Um, and again, are you owed that? You're not owed that. Is it important for you as a fan? No. Um, but God, it, it's nice to have it. It really is. And I feel like that there probably is a, a discussion to be had about how these two different properties are being treated uh, a little differently. 
Well, um, but I guess I would say on the flip side, um, you've had some Marvel shows, but Marvel has not been in your face Disney Plus wise like Star Wars stuff has. I, I mean, it, as far as the promos and things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, Loki was big and, you know, um, WandaVision. I wouldn't say WandaVision was big. I think WandaVision, mm-hmm. it, it ended At the up. the start of this year, remember. Yeah, but yeah, I, rem- I remember, but I also remember, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh my, oh my goodness, the book of Boba Fett has come up. Nobody was going, oh my goodness, WandaVision. Oh. I mean, not to that. No, not coming out, not coming out. Now, when we got the show, by week three or week four, like it was. You're right. You're right. Remember, you were complaining that you couldn't leading, go on Twitter. Up to it. But I'm sorry, but leading up to it, you had no idea what WandaVision was going to be about. Alex looks like he wants to chime in. You know, one thing I think is interesting about this is that, to my mind, one of the successes of Marvel is that the the notion of the intercontinuity of the uh, of of the the properties and that idea of something to tease you to get you to the next one isn't just a part of the movies; it's a part of comic books. That you know, when one of the things I always find fascinating when you now get a comic book a property, you know, repackaged as a graphic novel, is even when they try to take a story to the end, no comic book comes to a, a, a complete stop. It's always pointing you into whatever comes next, and, and so the idea that that happens in the Marvel movies, not just in the films themselves, but in the way they market. To me, that's pretty interesting. Whereas in the case of, I mean, as, as a person who is a little outside the Star Wars world, you know, I think the fact that they give you as much as they do about Star Wars is actually kind of a nod to where, where Disney is with the property. Because, you know, I mean, think back to pre-internet, you know, you, it just, you know, we, it never happened. We, we would find out, um, you know, I mean, even I think about the first, you know, the first of the J.J. Uh, Abrams, you know, and I find out, you know, find out in Vanity Fair. And yeah. uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that idea that, you know, in some ways we become so conditioned by the fact that Disney, Disney markets so aggressively and they tell us we're about to get our, you know, our Disney Plus day and you kind of figure and there's going to be Star Wars in it. So you figure you're going to get something. And I, and I understand feeling feeling jerked by it but at the same time it sort of makes some sense that right. d- that the the marvel properties are marketed in a different way than the disney than uh star wars well and and marvel has i mean you're absolutely right and that's and to dovetail off that it's you know star wars has always been an event thing it's like a movie comes out every three years you know you know in, in within a trilogy sometimes you have to wait 15 years between you know trilogies um but you know so it's an event you know whereas there's always marvel comics going on there's always marvel stuff so i think i think disney's also probably dealing with all right yeah we need to market star wars but we don't really need to market star wars and we also need to not wear out our welcome because i there's always that worry i've always been worried about this is that star wars is going to become star trek because we're going to have all of these, you're going to have deep space nine and the next generation and the, the movies and everything like that. And it's just going to become, you know, mush. So I think they're probably 
erring on the side of caution not to just shove star Wars down your throat all the time. I mean, we just got off the year of baby Yoda. So, you know, uh, but anyway, but again, I, nobody told us we were going to be getting all sorts of stuff on Disney plus day, but we all assumed, and then we were all let down. So it's our own fault. But yeah. And I think it's some of it has to just simply on how, with how uh, paired up Disney plus has been. I mean, the premiere of Disney plus was the Mandalorian. Yeah. That was the that was the hook to get everybody on the boat. Yes. Exactly. It was the it was seeing the first ever Star Wars TV show. So there's always gonna be a, a relation between that show and that experience with that streaming service. So even though they're gonna have a ton more other stuff, they're gonna be the ones that are gonna, you know, when you think of them, you're gonna think the the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda. So I mentioned uh I said we ironically saw a teaser for, you know, Rogue Squadron a year ago. Uh, we got something on that now, don't we? Yeah. So this came out about a few, eh, about a week ago. So from The Hollywood Reporter, it was announced that Rogue Squadron, the Star Wars feature movie to be directed by Patty Jenkins, has been put on, uh, it was looking to be developed for 2022, starting production 2022. However, sources are saying that producers and filmmaking team came to a realization that Jenkins had scheduled another commitment, so wouldn't allow for the window to make the movie. So now the movie's off the production schedule. Now, what other movie? I mean, what other movies does she have? She's actively working on developing Wonder Woman three for Warner Brothers. She's making a Cleopatra feature for Paramount. So maybe there was some sort of you know discussion as to. You know, when could they make all this stuff online? I mean, and we know that they've been working on a script, and who knows, maybe they just couldn't come together. But for right now, Rogue Squadron is not coming 2023. And so, and we're going to talk, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth in this in another episode. But uh, there was an article I saw today, just a little teaser, that it maybe goes a little bit more than just I have a conflict. It sounds like there might be a conflict between directors, writers, producers, and, and the, um, and the creative, the creative team at Lucasfilm. There are creative differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might explain why we don't have any news of a Ryan Johnson trilogy like there was, you know, a big hype of. Um, so we'll talk about that in an ne- in upcoming episode a little bit more. Um, but that's not for tonight. Yeah, so. yeah, just, yeah, but in general, it's just, it's disappointing because, you know, you're looking forward to it. It was big, hyped up big time uh, last year. And, uh, it would, it would have been a completely different Star Wars movie. It wouldn't have featured, you know, for, for instance, you know, the Skywalkers or the Jedi front and center. It would have been more about pilots and dodge battles and space battles and all this other stuff that's a part of Star and Wars. Volleyball and, and running. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have been Top Gun in Star Wars. Yes, yes, of course. And pilots named Iceman and uh, yeah. Merlin. The theme music would have been... Na, 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 na. But but uh but uh you know in the with the cantina band doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, it's it's disappointing. Never give up hope though. All right, yeah. so what, what else we got in the news? We got well and the last bit of news it's actually came out today. Um there was officially announced that Kathleen Kennedy, and speaking of the powers that be at Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy's contract has been renewed through at least twenty twenty four. Wasn't she fired five years ago? 
Hmm. Yeah, and then she was, and then they were gonna fire her again after the failures of the Last Jedi, and then the failures of the Rise of Skywalker, and then they were gonna fire her to give all the power to Dave Filoni. They were shoving her to the side, you know, all these rumors that keep coming out time and again. She's yeah, been fired more times than Bo Pelini, I think, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. or should have mm-hmm. been fired more times than Bo Pelini. Yep. So yeah, the long and short of it is, it's yeah, they uh, she her contract's been renewed through twenty twenty four. She was handpicked by George Lucas to be the new president when Disney bought them nearly a decade ago. And, of course, we're talking about, I mean, yeah, there's been some lows and some issues, but at the same time, Star Wars presence. You can't argue argue against her portfolio. Mm -hmm. All the movies she's been involved with, I mean, you can't argue. And if she was awful at what she did, then, yeah, there there would be no Star Wars going on right now. Dave, I interrupted you. You were going to say something. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure I was going to offer anything groundbreaking here, but I do think that she's um, fortunate in a way that we've got a bit of a dry spell with feature films to coincide with the pandemic. Um, it's you know, like I think she's probably getting the directive from up high that keep keep the brand out there, uh, feed the monster, which is the streaming service. Um, everything beyond that is gravy. Um, and so I, I think like some of the pressure may be off in that regard. Uh, we talk about rogue squadron being delayed. Um, <laughs> that might pay off for them. Uh, I mean, again, creative differences aside, if that movie actually happens, um, you could be talking about a difference in a lot of tickets being sold if we're that much further away from the pandemic movie theater um, issues that we've had over the last uh, two years. So um, there might be a little bit of I mean, this is total speculation, but that's that's part of what we do here. You know, but I mean, there we're entering in you talk about the pandemic. We're entering into an interesting way that we now consume new movies that you have in some cases the option of going to a theater or renting it on HBO Max or Disney Plus or name your streaming service here. So it might be one of those things like, hey, let's let some other people do these things and let's see what the numbers look like and see if that's something we want to do. But let's not spend a lot of money on because if we're going to do that, you know, I don't I, I don't know what I'll I don't know. It just might be one of those Let's pump the brakes a little bit and see how this all shapes out. Because like you said, Dave, people might really want to go to the movie theaters, but people might not want to go to the movie theaters. And so if they're not going to go to the movie theaters, are there some things you can do? Are, are you going to put as many bucks into, you know, special effects or this, that or the other or locations? Can we do stuff with the volume instead of, you know, filming a there might be a little bit of pumping the brakes, you know, because just to see how the public reacts to going to movies now that, you know, COVID's not as much of a thing. So I don't know. I'll also say that I think Top Gun in space, which is sort of like how we've been building this thing, sounds like a winner. Um, but does it sound like as big of a winner as episode 10? Um you know, so like I'm wondering too, it's like everything is a bit of a roll of the dice with Star Wars right now, short of 
an episode movie. So I think, yeah, we can shift things around. We can move things. Oh, you know what? Tyka's ready and Patty's not. So we're going to we're gonna go with the Tyka thing instead. That's the other thing. Disney you know. Plus Day, we didn't hear Jack about Tyka Watiti. Nobody said anything about him. Hey, I'm nope. going to get off this. We got other things to talk about. <laughs> no, but also, but also, I mean, you got to remember, and this is, I was, once I was listening to some, somebody's comedy, somebody's comedy saying, go, Disney, we own all the, all your dreams. And so you got to pay us for them. Just because, I mean, from the standpoint of all the movies coming out, yes, they're going to have Marvel movies coming out. They're going to have Pixar movies coming out. They're going to have their own Disney brand movies coming out. They have Star Wars. They have all those Avatar sequels that James Cameron's been working in secret over the last few years. They're coming out. So there's not necessarily a pressure per se. And this is where the benefit of Disney Plus and the TV show side helps. There's no pressure on people will go, oh my gosh, we haven't put out any Star Wars product in the last two years. People might be forgetting about the brand. No. We're gonna get multiple TV shows starting next month, through you know the time the the heat dead of the universe for Star Wars if we wanted. So if they decide okay, maybe you know maybe we can shift some of the movies schedule around to give the director we want to have helming this project time to get it right and finish whatever else she's, other commitments she's got. You know that's one of the reasons you do hire somebody like Kathleen Kennedy to go big picture. Big picture is not decided between now and next year. Big pictures decide between now and next decade or next, you know, so many years because, yeah, you're going to have to fight for everybody else, you know, for, you know, for your space amongst every other IP that's out there. Uh, uh, one last little personal bit of news. Um, two years ago, I was supposed to go to Disney World and see Star Wars land and, you know, mm-hmm. Millennium Falcon and the Rise of Resistance, all that. And then, of course, covid and uh, uh, this May, this May, we're 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 going, and so uh, May the fourth. Uh, no, be after that, be after that. But um, so fingers crossed that another pandemic doesn't you know come to play here. But uh, so yeah, that's uh, hopefully I'll have to take some uh, some footage of me sobbing on the Millennium Falcon <laughs> and uh, play it on the podcast, but. Uh, any more news? Uh, that's it. That's it for right now. That's it. So, uh, Dave and Matassa, do you give us a, a better, more formal introduction of and explain why Alex is here on a Star Wars podcast? Sure. Um, so, Alex and I have gone back and forth um, a lot about this idea of um, remakes and remixes and covers and like how that you see that across different mediums and what that might mean and what that looks like and why they're popular, why they're, why they sometimes don't work. Um, and so we've, we've kind of had some informal discussions about that kind of thing. Um, and you see it again, you see it everywhere. Um, you see it, we see it in Star Wars. And again, this is kind of the tie-in that I thought might make a lot of sense for our show. Um, and his podcast deals like specifically with cover songs. Um, and I think that's just a really interesting thing to kind of dive into with him uh, to start things off. Um, and maybe just like 
to ask you like how this whole project got started for you and you know how it got off the ground and where it is now and where you see it going and all that good stuff well the uh the reason i started focusing so much on uh on the christmas music particularly and the sort of the classic christmas canon is because it always struck me much of the way you as you sort of said david that you kind of had i also saw them as a test uh, for a musician that here you have this body of very familiar music and the question is can you do something worth it that gives people a reason to pay attention to yours do you give do can you do something to give, make give yours a reason to exist and if you're a writer can you take this incredibly familiar property and this incredibly familiar body of ideas and images and can you make something out of it that again has a reason to exist give people a reason to pay attention to what you've done. And so, you know, in many ways, it struck me as a, as a way to hear a, uh, a musician's real talent. Uh, I think about, uh, oh, Harry Connick Jr. released a good uh, Christmas album about five years ago. It was his second Christmas album. And one of the things that struck me on it is that it's a great argument for Harry Connick Jr. as an arranger. Um, because he finds a range, finds ways to get into songs and finds a life for classic songs that you don't see coming at all. And when you hear it, it doesn't sound at all gimmicky. It doesn't sound like it was trying to do something counterintuitive. It was very clear that as a musician, he heard an opening that other people haven't gone into yet and that he heard this as a way to open up this song and open up some element of it. And, I'm, and it made me appreciate his work. And once I heard that, I could go back and listen to other Harry Connick work, and I could hear just how smartly uh, put together they were, how musically in, intelligent they are. And it's a thing that we kind of know here in New Orleans. Harry's been a part of our musical lives here for you know, since he was a teenager. But even then, we thought about him as a piano prodigy. And it wasn't until later that I became started to appreciate just how incredibly smart his music is. And it, I mean, since we're using New Orleans examples, the same thing is I, I found the case on uh, Wynton Marsalis' Crescent City Christmas Card, um, which was a, a much younger Wynton. I, I mean, it was in the 80s. Um, and it's almost too much that it is so exploding with ideas and, uh, and it can be as a whole album, a little bit wearing because it's just so much going on, but any three and a half minutes of it are just so alive and so smart. And you can hear him exploring almost as many ideas as he can manage in that three and a half minutes. And, and, and his horn being the least crucial. Uh, his horn is often not the centerpiece of whatever he was doing uh, in that. And so this has kind of been my, kind of the fascination. Uh, how do you do this? And uh, what were, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. What were, what were the, the, I'm trying to remember what the, the whole album series that came out in the, 
late eighties, early nineties. It was a, a very special Christmas or something like that. Is yes. that what it is? Yes. Um, you know, some of the, when, as you were talking, some of those struck me because, um, like the first version of that, I remember being very, very good. Yes. Like for example, uh, for example, Bob Seger's version of little drummer boy is my favorite version of that song. Cool. To, to this date. And uh, it's a combination of his voice, the saxophone, you know, it, and he, so there was some, like you said, there were some elements that made it different from every other little drummer boy, but I'm going to fast forward now to later versions of that, you know, album series where it just got to be almost stupid, you know, uh, like so, some songs just, it, it was just kind of, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, any of the Pitch Perfect movies, yes. but uh, Pitch Perfect Two, when Snoop Dogg is doing his uh, uh, Christmas album, and you know it's, and the guy and the producer is like saying it's it can't be the same damn Christmas album, you know, you know. So you're right, it, but it is a fine line between, you know, being innovative and being messy. Yes, I think in a lot of these, or just being Aaron singing "Little Drummer Boy." It's like you didn't do anything to push it along. Um, Bruce Springsteen, you know, doing the the Jackson Five version of "Santa Claus is Coming to Town." That's another good one. Yes, um, he, he actually his model was uh, was uh, the Ronettes, um, not Jackson Five, but yes, it is him doing this classic version. He was it was his Jackson doing, Five as well. No, his version of the is based on uh, that. His version is based on the Phil Spector Christmas album version, okay. which redefined that song because up to that point, everybody always sang, uh, you, know, you better watch out because Santa Claus is coming to town. And in the Ronettes version, they stopped because Santa Claus. And since then, everybody does that. That I have every version I've got from the 80s on. I recently found a BTS. Uh, K-pop oh. <laughs> Christmas version yeah. of that, and they do that pause. Everybody does that pause now. Uh, and Jackson Five, they do that. They do the uh, Phil Spector pause in that spot. So I know yeah. why you heard it as that. Um, and the uh, there's the uh, Springsteen versions, as I think is really impressive. It does a few things I think are great. Uh, one of the things I always like, my first version I have of that is actually on a bootleg from 1978 from a, uh, a concert in San Francisco on the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. And it has a lengthy preamble where he's talking about playing a gig on Christmas Eve and him and Miami Steve having to like carry the gear back home after the they're lugging the gear down the boardwalk and... Uh, bah humbug. It's like, I hear I'm doing it's Christmas Eve. Nothing's going on. You know, night's over. We're going back to go home and we'll just watch TV. And, and then Clarence Clemens comes out in a Santa suit and, and, and they start their way into Santa Claus is coming to town. And it's both, it's great because it, you have at this point, Springsteen would be late 20s and maybe maybe early, probably late 20s or early 30s at the most. And he's old enough that a Christmas song is totally corny. And he's, a, he's at a rock concert. He's in front of a big audience. 
and he goes ahead and commits 100% to not only the song, but a tall tale connected to it. And he get, and, and you can tell by the response then and since the crowd 100% bought in. And he got a bunch of people who all thought they were too cool for Christmas music to 100% buy in for that moment. And he's still, not only does he still do it live, last time he played Bonnaroo in, you know, in, in the middle of summer, he played it in the middle of summer. So I think it was July. He, he did a Christmas in July version. Was he, was he with the was he with the East Street Band at that yes. point? Yes. Okay. Because that's the other thing is I think the the instrumentation of that band makes that version shine. Yes. Um, over over others, you know, um, it's just it just again you add Clarence Clemens tenor sax, you add you know Max Weinberg's you know drumming, you know the, the you know the pianos everything it just makes the whole thing just shine. Well, and and I just we talked a moment ago about. Again, you sort of hearing these versions helps you appreciate someone's musicianship. And in this case, he was taking a cue from a Phil Spector produced track, which meant that there were two or three pianos, right. probably three to four guitars. You've got 10 backing vocalists. And as big as E Street Band is, E Street Band is not as big as a Phil Spector studio production. Fair. And so yeah. you hear. But what you hear is Springsteen figuring out, I've got about seven or eight instruments up here. How do I build what he built? And you can hear him thinking through, okay, we add this, then we add this. And so by the time we get to this point, it sounds huge, though we really only have our usual uh, you know, cadre of instruments here. So it's really, really smart on a lot of levels. What is the, what is the, I'm sorry, I'm just now hijacking this whole thing. What is the, what is the worst, um, Christmas cover in your book? Oh, the, the worst Christmas cover. I can't tell you because it's the one you completely forget exists. I, I'm a, I'm a mm. firm believer that, that much like, much like with movies, like a bad movie isn't the movie that was dreadfully made. It's the movie that was so banal and that was so done by the boardroom that you forget it exists and you forget you were watching it almost while you're watching it. I disagree because I still remember the half of Caddyshack two that I watched. <laughs> but no, you're, you're, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I've got, okay. I have, I have thoroughly, it's funny just today I was talking to uh, a producer who uh, for the uh, numero group, a reissue uh, a label that specializes in reissues. And they've got a really interesting, really fun uh, country uh, Christmas album that's maybe coming out this week and uh, called uh, Christmas Dreamers. And there's a lot on it that is right in that border of so entertainingly nutty, potentially such a bad idea that someone committed to that you um, that it's technically not very good at all, but it is awesome at the same time. Uh, oh man, there's one, there's one where little boy basically tells daddy uh, that uh, to uh, stop drinking, and it's about daddy realizing he's just you know he's a drunken mess, and uh, and this ties back to Santa Claus, and I wish I could remember the title of it, but I would have to go and start Sorry, sort of another, scanning for it. Another another awesome one 
is uh, is John Mellencamp's uh, "I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus" um, that he did again in that early uh, uh, very special Christmas thing um, because that was about the time where he was putting a lot of fiddles into his you know into his band, and so you got that you know you got that more southern feel to this to this song that was usually, you know, some lisping kid, you know, and it just, it just rocked. It was, it was really, really, I, that's one that, so again, it kind of, it was the song, but he, he made it into his own yeah. and, and added his own style. I have to say that's a song that I don't have a lot of patience for. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, that one's always a little too cute for me. Uh, but, I'll, but I'll tell you, and, and that goes somewhere because I can. T- I, I've got a pretty high threshold. But uh, but I think you were talking about the very special Christmas uh, collection, which has a couple of a couple of minor moments on it. One of which is it has Run DMC's Christmas and Hollis. Yes, Christmas and Hollis. Which is yeah. which is, I, I've been working on a uh, working on a piece on uh, a, a hip hop Christmas story, and everyone I talk to. That's a touchstone. Um, it's Christmas time it's- in Hollis, Queens. <laughs> Mom's cooking chicken and collard greens. Rice and stuffing macaroni and cheese. Santa puts gifts under Christmas trees. In the fireplace is a Yule log. Beneath the under... <laughs> I, I uh, 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 yeah, okay. I'm wearing the Jesus too, guys. So, yeah, sorry. The, yeah, uh, but the other thing that's of interest in that one is uh, Madonna does a version of Santa Baby, yep. which... Mm-hmm. Which I recently uh, did an, did an episode on versions of Santa Baby, with a number of a uh, number of uh, women who were either singers or or uh, writers, uh, Dana Kurtz, Alexandra Scott, and uh, Allison Fensterstock, and we were kind of going through versions of Santa Baby, and we found the Madonna version largely loathsome because she is just sort of playing the sort of the uh the dumb blonde uh like stereotype from countless movies who basically looks for her sugar daddy to walk her through the world and and it, it missed so much of what makes Eartha Kitt's version work at the same time there's a good chance that had it not been for that one the only that uh Eartha Kitt's version would be this sort of marginal Christmas song. It's been covered a bunch of times, including we listened to Taylor Swift's and Gwen Stefani's versions. Um, there's another couple that I, that we talked about. Um, Gwen Stefani's is actually pretty good, but uh, but it is now a part of the common sort of the Christmas collection that you might cover, largely because of Madonna. Um, and I think a lot of people think about Eartha Kitt's version because they want to see where Madonna's version came from. So it's kind of an interesting. It brings to mind an interesting idea that um, that I had about this, which is that it seems to me that most of your hits, or at least the songs that become popular within Christmas music nowadays, are covers. Um, you have a few original songs that break through every now and then, very, but they're not very few. I was thinking the same thing that very few, it's like, how often do you hear somebody write a new Christmas song, but go ahead, keep going. Yeah. I mean, it, but barely top 40 uh, impression at, ever. 
Um, it's it's mostly just um, covers. Like uh, a band gets approached about doing a Christmas album, and they and they, they mostly do covers on that that album. Is is that an accurate statement? And I'm wondering if you have any insight as to why it is that it seems like kind of an elusive thing for artists nowadays to find a hit with uh, with that original material when it comes to Christmas stuff. Oh, I don't think it, it you get Christmas new Christmas songs far more than you're aware of. I've I have tons of new Christmas music. Um, but there's no question that the going to the cover is in a lot of ways in a lot of ways, simply simpler. It also for, uh, it gives you a better chance at getting played and finding a place in the world. Again, no question. Uh, and so there's a lot of incentive. Part of it is simply, you know, nostalgia. The fact is that people like the songs they know and like to hear the songs they can already sing along with. And a new version of a song, you know, it's like, oh, a song I can sing along to and that I like, you know, okay, you know, John Cougar gave me a Christmas song that you know, gave me a, a new version of, of, of uh, All I Want for, or I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. You know, the, uh, that there's a, there's a sort of a nice simplicity to it, whereas trying to get a new Christmas song really is pushing uphill. Uh, this week, last week, Mariah Carey released a new Christmas song. Uh, fall in love this uh, fall in love at Christmas time, and thankfully she doesn't try to go back and do the same thing she did with uh, All I Want for Christmas Is You. I mean, yeah. it's far more of a sort of a Christmas slow jam uh, and a, a duet with a, a singer uh, Khalid until halfway through the song when suddenly Kirk Franklin and his choir kick in and turn it into a gospel song, and it's very odd. Um, it's entertainingly odd, so I, I'm actually I, I, mean, I like it, uh, but it's it's almost like she realized like on one hand she had to get back in the game and try at least one more time, but it's not trying to do a pop song. This is far more in a in a clear R and B lane. Uh, does it? Did I answer your question, say, David, or did I sort of did I just sort of flumper yeah. my way into all manner of directions? Well, I, I guess like. Where I, if I'm coming at it with an ulterior motive, it's um, it's this idea of familiarity sure. becoming really important for people. And again, you see that with Star Wars. Um, well, we, we get the same story over and over and over again. We always kind of like we go back and forth on this show. Like, is this property the the this particular show, this particular movie, does it evoke? Star Wars is it Star Warsy enough, and what makes it Star Warsy? And I think like there's some of that at play um, with Christmas music. Sure, yeah, I think my suspicion is thinking about my own Star Wars experiences that you know we always you know the sweet spot for so many of us is that uh, sort of our early teens are sort of our middle school into uh, high school years. And the, the stuff that was a part of our world in that time sort of has been 
just been validated by the fact that, you know, it's been in our world for so long and that that ends up being our sweet spot. I can, that there's, you know, music from, music from the mid seventies will almost always sound good to me. And it's like, okay, I know everything wrong with this, but it's still, it like, it's got a shortcut sort of through all the neural pathways and, and it lands. And so, you know, whereas other songs, and I make my connections in a lot of ways with a lot of other material, obviously, and as do y'all, but I'm sure that, you know, the first, you know, the first Star, you know, the Star Wars that caught you, everything is going to have to live in the shadow of that moment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I think uh, that, and, and, you know, and nostalgia, nostalgia is a part of it, but I think nostalgia is, called, is sort of underselling it. It's that moment where you first engaged something and that was a powerful moment. And so since then you continue to engage and it can, and it's, so it's part, it's sort of the founding moment of a longer process. Well, but that's something we we've talked about on this show before is that, I mean, I, I don't think, I think you're, nostalgia has a huge part of it um, because the people it's our contention that the people who didn't like episodes one, two, and three, or at least it's my contention. I think the other two guys probably agree with me a little bit, but the people who did not like one, two, and three were expecting to have the same reaction as they did when they saw four five and six, when they were seven years old. But the problem is they're now in their thirties, you know, and have bills to pay and they weren't, you know, they're beaten down by life and they weren't whisked away like they were when they were seven. So I think it is, um, uh, I, I, that, I, that's a huge part of it. Um, Fredo, you've been wanting to say something. No, uh, I, yeah. I, you have a, a question for, for Alex. Yeah, no, I was going to say, because as, as Alex and David were talking, I was remembering last year, I listened to uh, Leslie Odom Jr. put out a Christmas album last year. And what was interesting about it was, I mean, it was really well done. He has... Uh, uh, the um, Sunsea Youth Choir and a bunch of the songs, which had some criminals, right? But it was 10 songs. Six of them were covers. He right. did have four uh, original songs in there, which I wonder how often they got played versus, oh, let me hear his version of All Lang Syne of, or Melikali Kimaka, just because those are the stuff that, you know, we're going to naturally gravitate to. It's a, I, you know, in some ways it may be more, we want to hear their version of it as opposed to hearing something that's completely new and out the box, but it's, you know, it's, um, you almost think about it like in the sense of the cover becomes the mechanism through which everybody's more willing to listen to the new. Sure. Because that's what people are going to gravitate to first. And then if in between, you know, Oh Holy Night and Little Drummer Boy, there's a new song. Okay. Maybe it was Cynthia Revo. I'll listen to it and Hey, that's interesting. That's neat. I'll maybe throw it on my playlist, but it's not the reason I came on. Sure. Well, I have to say, there's another side of this, though, which is the uh, the budget. And a lot of those songs are old enough that they are now public domain. And so you don't have to pay a writer. You don't have to pay licensing fees. And so it ends up being good business. It ends up being good business. And I also imagine that in a, in a great deal is... It's a lot easier to say, I want to do my version of uh, The Little Drummer Boy. You know, I want to do my own version of It's Been Into Look A Lot Like Christmas because 
even if you grew up with the originals, you're compared against somebody who may not be here. I mean, I cannot imagine anybody right now, Adele, uh, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, trying to cover All I Want for Christmas is You. Right. Like, if they tried that, it would just be like, what What are you doing? Stop. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to cover from an artist that's not around, or to put it in sour terms, if you're going to replicate something, you're going to replicate the stuff that's 40 years old, almost 50 years old, as opposed to stuff that's just a few years old. Well, actually, that is not quite... Excuse me. That's not quite what you... That isn't quite what you would expect anymore because you now think about who's nostalgic and Mm -hmm. that I've been actually doing some writing about uh, Gen X nostalgia and you think that is last Christmas by wham. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and there <laughs> are that stuck in my head for the rest of the night. Yeah, it's my oh. pleasure. So, and I quite like that song by the way, so I don't feel bad about that. Uh, but the, uh, and and actually there are people now starting to cover all I want for Christmas is you. There's a great, uh, violin player who sort of, he makes his music, uh, in a lot of ways by looping instruments, uh, performs under the name Kishibashi. And he did a great track that he released just as kind of a uh, a benefit flexi disc called it's uh, it's Christmas but it's not white in my hometown. This is beautiful, strange, like minute and a half little song. And uh, but he also did a version of All I Want for Christmas is You, but obviously by changing the gender and moving, he's not putting himself in a position where. He is asked, begging you to compare him to Mariah, which obviously, if an Adele or a Beyonce did, you would, it would, it would feel it'd like be it'd be impossible not to, and it would also feel like kind of a boss move to try to get in and and uh, and push Mariah off of her uh, off of her claim to fame. So uh, it'd be like Highlander; there can be only one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of that kind of gets to to my question for you because mm-hmm. I mean when I when I listen to these, I, I'm always looking for, are you, and when I was, when I was in a band, uh, an Irish band, um, the guy who was the leader of our group, he wanted us to record a Christmas album. And I was like, no, I don't want to do a Christmas album. I don't want to do it because we wouldn't, all we would do is play the same damn songs, but just with these instruments, it wouldn't really, we would not be doing anything to progress a song or take our own version on it. It's just a money grab. And so a lot of the things uh, um, with Christmas music, especially, it's like it's sometimes like, okay, no offense to Adele. Adele's got a great voice. She could record, you know, Christmas music and probably sell, uh, you know, probably sell like gangbusters. But it's just somebody with a good voice singing songs that we know. Whereas the what you were talking about with the violin looping, that's the kind of thing that it's like, okay, if you're doing that with um uh, you're, you're actually playing with, with a song or doing something different with it. It's kind of like, uh, um, Katie Tunstall does a version of Don Henley's boys of summer. My wife hit me to this one once it's like, you know, you had Don Henley and a lot of people have done this song. You have Don Henley. Then the, what is it? The, uh, who did it? Uh, the, anyway, some, some emo group did it like <laughs> not too long ago, you know, and, and it was the same song, just with little harder guitars. But then Katie Tunsil takes it and brings it more acoustic, slows it way down, turns it into a ballad, and it's a 
beautiful version of it. So I guess that's a long little setup to when you are, what's your rubric of this is a good Christmas cover. This is a Christmas cover that is maybe not as good. What kind of things do you look for? I want one of two. I either need creativity so that someone is in some ways making it fresh or I need some kind of just remarkable craft. Uh, I recently was listening to a, a, a new track by a version of version of Winter Wonderland, I think, by Ingrid Michelson, a woman who uh, put an album out about three or four years ago and now has reissued it with, two, with three or four new, new tracks. And it's influenced by the Andrews sisters, acknowledges up front, and it is absolutely beautiful. And it is, there's, if you didn't know sonically, just because it sounds fresher and sounds more contemporary than something recorded in the 50s or 60s, you would think it was a, it was a classic. It has that sound, um, and it's so beautifully executed. Uh, another one right now, there's a guy I interviewed recently, uh, a jazz vocalist uh, named uh, Jose James who recently recorded a Christmas album with traditional jazz, uh, jazz trio behind him, uh, you know, bass, drums, piano. Uh, piano player is Aaron Parks, who's a remarkable piano player. Used to, I, first, I first heard him playing with Terrence Blanchard here in town. And that it is going back to classics and, going, and doing them the way so many people did jazz standards, uh, sort of jazz standards versions of Christmas songs in the past. But simply the quality of the performance across the board is such that even if nobody's doing anything terribly innovative, they're doing the things they're doing so remarkably well that it's like, yeah, I'm there for that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that kind of circles back to your Adele point Aaron, which is just like, well, okay, so her voice is so incredible that I'm like here for this right now. Yeah, and I have to um, say, I want to hear Adele do Christmas music because I think that since, I mean, her voice is amazing, but she keeps putting it in good good contexts and situations that frame it really well, and I think that if Adele decided to make a Christmas record, it would probably be awesome. So... And it, I'm sorry. It's it's also it's interesting. Again, talking this whip this back to Star Wars for a second because you know one of the things we've talked about is, um, you know, can there be Star Wars without you know Jedi and the Force and lightsabers and things like that? And so I think there are some things. It, it's kind of funny. It's like it seems like every Christmas song, it, like at least every about fourth Christmas song, has to have sleigh bells in it. You know, it's like there are there are certain things that just it's like has to be in it. So it's there's some things in Star Wars that are just sonically, it's like the sound of a lightsaber, this, the sound of the blasters. That's why when Force Awakens came out and the first, one of the first blasters you hear didn't sound like the blasters from the other movies. And I was, I was put off. <laughs> you know, it, was, it, it took me out of the moment for a second. Yeah. So again, I go back to that where it's like, it's a fine line between, you know, doing something innovative and then doing too much to take somebody out of it. And I think actually, you know, like 
I love I love Christmas music with instrumental jazz, not necessarily a jazz vocalist, because they have a lot more leeway. It's like, oh yeah, cool, okay, yeah, that's Jingle Bells, but it's you know, in a bebop style, you know. So it's you know they they can do a lot more. Whereas I think a vocalist sometimes, it, it you're you're playing with fire because either the crowd's going to go, that was awesome or you just ruined my favorite song <laughs> and that's what happens with star wars it yeah. was like with the sequel trilogy it was like that was awesome or you just ruined star wars for me for the rest of my life thank you yeah yes i i, I hear that entirely um i'll tell you what's been interesting for me is there was a time where i was probably more of a purist about things need to sound like christmas um, I, I either I need the be- sleigh bells or I need something that sort of floats around these classic melodies uh, or classic themes. But in recent years, I've become a little less fussy about that, uh, partly as I started listening to more international Christmas music and realizing that sleigh bells mean absolutely nothing in Puerto Rico, and so Puerto Rican Christmas music doesn't have sleigh bells. And uh, I actually, I just recently uh, did a piece on, on an episode about uh, a couple of Australian Christmas songs, uh, one by an Australian singer named Paul Kelly, uh, which is just all kinds of, like, heartbreak song called uh, um, Who, uh, Who'll, Make the, uh, Who'll Make the Gravy? And it's about, it's a guy in prison talking basically thinking about the family and the family get together on Christmas day, but realizing of course it's summertime in Australia in December. And so all sort of winter references mean absolutely nothing. And, uh, I've now, as I sort of become as this sort of becomes a fascination, I now also have Japanese Christmas music. And again, all of this stuff is so outside of the uh, the realm of both, you know, classic Christian uh, classic Christian carols, the the great American songbook, or the in- or, or instruments that we associate with Christmas. So that's kind of all got me to start to open up and think about it a little differently and be a little more generous to the songs that uh, aren't as sort of right right down Santa Claus Lane. <laughs> Sorry, the, the thing that comes to my brain, has everybody here seen Better Off Dead, the 80s? Oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. All I can think of is, do you have Christmas in France? <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> See, I was thinking, you know, I can't wait to hear a Mongolian throat singing Christmas carol. I, I, I will. I'm going to say it. I believe it exists. I don't have any, but I believe it exists. Because every band needs money. They all make a Christmas album because they need money. Yeah. Dude, well, the I, thing is that, go ahead. Go no, ahead, I was going to say, it seemed like, it seemed like uh, the Christmas album was a staple of the any artist's um, trajectory. Like, like you have to have your live album. You have to have your mm-hmm. double album when you got experimental. And, but you had to have a Christmas album at some point, whether you were the biggest of the big or, you know, doing your, just your regular career. Sure. What, what's interesting is when... They started doing them in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and when you had those kind of, you know, pop singers you know, like Bing Crosby, like, uh, you know, like Andy Williams, people who, you know, whose, whose names we now only know from Christmas music that mm-hmm. used to be around Christmas season, 
they would stop and do a Christmas record. And the premise of the record was that this was kind of a, almost like, like, like let's take a vacation for a minute. And that I've been singing this kind of thing and I've been projecting this kind of image, but let's stop for a minute and we'll do these things. And it's kind of like, a, uh, almost like a fan club activity where it's like you and me, we, we, you know, we share, we, you know, we're our Christmas, right? We're there. And so it was kind of a moment of like, my, from my family to yours, and is and it was a way to also, in terms of business, to tide people over from going to the fall to here's something, and then new album or new release comes out in the spring, new music is coming out in the spring, touring is happening in the spring, and so it's a way to stay in the public eye. And so it was very much a business activity, but it was very much about sort of part of the part of the, the the narrative of the artist and to say I'm a normal person just like you mm-hmm. uh, and so that was uh, was kind of really was it was a part of what that did and we we now see it as part of a staple uh, f- from the remove but that's really that's a lot of what was happening at the time you talked about buy-in a little bit earlier too, where, where like Bruce would have to get the buy-in of the different members of his band to try to like be like, "Yes, we're doing this thing," and it's kind of the same way where you're like meeting the fans where they live, um, and we see that with Star Wars a lot too. Where it's like, um, it helps. I, I think it really does help when the creator connects with the material on some level. You see that all the time with like people that work in sci-fi, um, actors, directors, etc. When they when they're asked about this stuff, and they're like, "You just have to go into it, and you have to believe in it, and you have to connect with it on some emotional level." And I, I would imagine that that that's that's a lot of what you know the most successful material that you see in this regard. Oh. oh. Well, my, my smoke detector <laughs> going off. Oh, so. You must check on that. I'm, I'm, yeah, okay. That's. It'd be nice if it would stop. Oh, another one's going off. I don't think my house is on fire. So okay. All right. take a look. It's it's not. I was okay. just gonna say, uh, Dave Filoni, Dave. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I was thinking about an actress interview recently. I can't even remember the actress, but she was talking about sci-fi and and how like um she had imparted this onto another actor at the time, which was like, you just have to like dive into it and believe in it. And, and then like he quoted her on it and he became huge later. And again, I don't even remember the act. I I think it was, um, uh, I think it was James McAvoy (laughs) 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 who quoted her on this. Like, yeah, this is how I became, this is how I became Professor X, you know, and all these yeah. other things and had this long, huge career is because like she told me this thing. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. It, I've talked to a lot of people about this. Uh, in the first, my first season, there was a band, I believe they're called Wizards of Winter, and they were essentially inspired by Trans-Siberian Orchestra and do a Trans-Siberian kind of prog rock Christmas thing. And the, the the band leader said point blank when I that when I asked, he said for a while it was hard to find uh, a band at one point because there were people who's like, I didn't get into rock and roll to play Christmas music, 
And, uh, and a number of times, a number of musicians I've talked to said that when they were in different places in their life, different places in their career, that there was, a Christmas record would never have occurred to them. But having kids, and suddenly that changed the way they think about it. And you know, getting to a place where they, place in their life where they sort of see Christmas differently. You know, you're, if you're 24 and uh, you're 24 and touring, that, you know, there's a good chance that's, that's not a part of something you're thinking about. But as I say, as people get older or their lives change, their lives, you know, say develop, you know, have bigger families, then these pieces start to fall into place. And so I, th- and I think that's absolutely a part of it that the ones, but it takes being in the place to commit to it, that people aren't always there. And, uh, I, I interviewed early on Robert Earl, Robert Earl Keane, uh, from Texas, uh, Americana singer who's well known for Merry Christmas from the family. And mm-hmm. he, uh, it turned out when I interviewed him, we discovered that we lived in the same neighborhood in Houston growing up. Uh, I was in grade school while he was in junior high. So when there was a number of years between us, but we realized we lived about 10 blocks from each other. And one of the things we connected on was that we were talking about why he hadn't done Christmas music sooner. And he's like, I said, we lived in Houston. I have no idea what a chestnut roasted chestnut tastes like. (laughs) And, and that it's not, you know, Christmas songs weren't the musical world he was living in. They weren't, for the most part, the lyrical world he was living in. And so many of the trappings didn't make any sense to him. And so it took life rolling along to get to a place where these became something he could commit to. And then once he did, it, you, know, he, you know, that Merry Christmas from the family is brilliant. So, you know, he got there so, once he got there. So uh, <clears throat> Hardware Wars, Family Guy... <laughs> um, robot chicken, you know, space balls, star Wars has had a lot of parodies, you know, and, um, how do you feel about the Christmas song parodies like the 12 yats of Christmas or, you know, the 12 pains of Christmas or, you know, um, any, any of these others that, that, you know, take, take the, the classic Christmas songs and make a parody out of it. Because I mean, there are some oh, you're, Star Wars you're killing me. who love those parodies. Some that yeah, yeah, don't. You, you're killing well, me, Aaron. Because because I got to say, yes, there are there are some I like, and I'm 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 frustrated because I can't give you one quickly. Uh, Twelve Years of Christmas is another the, one. Uh, Kenzie Brothers. <laughs> yes, Bob and Doug. I, I I used to live in Hamilton, Hamilton Ontario, yeah. uh, where the uh, where Strange Brew was filmed. That I know where Elsinore, the uh, where the Elsinore Brewery was, and so oh, awesome. I am a strong fan of uh, SCTV and Bob and Doug, and so yes, that one works for me. Uh, I'll tell you, there's a few. This isn't exactly what you're fishing for, but there's a few that I I love. Um, a few at least novelty things that are great. One, and I'll send this to to you, David, so you can include it if you so desire. But the uh, there's a, a track from the Pac-Man Christmas album that is so beautifully strange and uh, <laughs> sort, sort of sort of fragile and odd, and I, 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 I absolutely adore it. And there is also, not as successful, but equally entertaining in its own way, 
is I actually have a Night Rider Christmas track from the that uh, with uh, Anthony Daniels, uh, the voice Anthony Daniels, uh, the, the voice uh, the voice of Kit, and it is sort of this. It's almost rap, and it's like it's it's basically it's how it's how Kit saved Christmas, and <laughs> it's way too long. It's like it's at least five minutes, and it's not very good. But I, I'm always sort yeah. of perversely entertained every we time I hear, to hear this. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really, I'm really sorry. However, the one thing we haven't talked about though is um, there was a Star Wars Christmas album. Yes. Right. Yeah. Christmas in the Stars. That's right. Um, so I, ha- yes, I have about- it. You have, yeah. I think I think I might have it as well. But yeah, so is that uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> I I'll tell you. I would when I was talking with David about doing this, I went back to reach to check it and to see. Uh, and really beyond R two D two, we wish you a merry Christmas. It's pretty hard to listen to. Um, <laughs> I would imagine so. It, but however, I, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm going to go back to what Fredo was talking about and. And what you were talking a little bit, Alex, as well, is that, I mean, it's one thing for a band to buy into it and say, we want to do a Christmas album. But I was not joking earlier when I said it's easy money for a band, yeah. you know, and it, it seemed like it was part. I mean, whether I mean, whether you like it or not, you guys are going to re- it's kind of like in that thing you do. You know, I don't care if you're going to record that thing you do in Spanish and you're going to do, you know, it, because they knew it was going to be a cash grab for everybody. I mean, to the point where Neil Diamond had put out a Christmas. A album, few. Yeah. You know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Neil Diamond's Jewish. And I have no problem yeah. with, you know, Jewish people doing Christmas music, but I mean. They wrote you know, it. They wrote I mean, a lot of it. So. Yeah. I mean, yes. but, but, you, but you know what I mean? Yes. It's, 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 yes. you know, um, so th- it's for record companies and this is going to be cynical, Aaron. Every now and again, Aaron gets you know very cynical on this podcast and get off my lawn type of a thing. But I mean, it always seems to me like okay, we're putting out a Christmas album because I need to buy Christmas gifts for my for my kids type of a thing. That that's sometimes part of what the record company is doing. Well, let's do a couple of things here. One of which is I want to say in a previous episode of my podcast uh, earlier this year. I talked to a guy, Larry Weinstein, a film director from, um, from Toronto, who did an excellent documentary called Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. And the whole theme of it was talking to writers and musicians uh, about dealing with this. And there's a lot really interesting in it. It's, it's one of those things that we go to quickly and go like, oh, you know, well, how ironic and so much of it was, is really kind of interesting in you, in the way the way many of these songwriters consider themselves incredibly successful because they basically were able to write the songs that came to define the way, you know, Gentiles celebrated Christmas and the way they put so many themes of outsiderness into it. So really pretty, you know, it's pretty smart stuff. Anyway, it's a really entertaining documentary and it's on Apple. It's on Apple and you can also, I think I, also found it uh, through, not YouTube, but anyway, it's out there. It's findable. Uh, Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. And um, as for the, the, the sort of the cash grabness of it, 
A, if you're putting out a record, you're kind of trying to grab some cash. No one's putting out records. People are putting out records and losing money, but they're not trying to lose money. They're putting out right. records hoping it is, is, they're always going to grab some cash. The, but I, I, I know completely what you're saying. And there's certainly, when a, record feels, also- when a record feels too mercantile, you kind of want to pull back. You like to think it's got to feel like that there was some kind of an artistic idea involved here. Because, no. But you're right, because they will... Like, I had a guy tell me that a Christmas record will sell... You could kind of figure it's got about a three- or four-year lifespan. Um, and a lot don't sell at all. But if it hits at all, it can keep hitting and keep hitting. And, you know, you look... When Christmas season comes, you'll look at Billboard's uh, uh, Christmas, uh, Christmas charts, the uh, Christmas album charts, and... You'll still have Michael Bublé, uh, you know, 15 years after or whatever, after his Christmas album. Andreas Bocelli's Christmas album still routinely uh, charts. And in, the, and in the pop charts, Billboard has sort of changed the way they, they calculate the, the top, uh, top singles. And so now, first, they do allow old, old records to re-enter the charts. And they also calculate streaming. And so during December, that Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You, will return. Holly Jolly Christmas routinely returns. Um, Bobby Helms' Jingle Bell Rock routinely returns to the top 10. Uh, Brenda Lee's uh, uh, Rock Around the Christmas Tree. You have these 50, 60-year-old songs that are actually charting again. Um, And so... uh, who's, I guess Mac- I wish I could remember now. Mac- the money McCartney said he's made from Wonderful Christmas Time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, but yeah, you know, too much. But you know, uh, on not to be totally cynical because I mean, this has been in the musicians' you know playbook from forever. I mean, Handel wrote water music not because he was feeling particularly creative; it was because the um, you know the king wanted to have a boat party. You know, royal music for the royal fireworks. Same thing. He wrote it for a because they were having fireworks. So you know, they had a patron. They were writing music because they were getting paid to. Now they wrote really great music. You know, it's it's not schlock, and that that's the thing. It's like you can you can kind of tell when something's like it would have been like my band just making a Christmas album because we wanted to put out a Christmas album because that's sure. what people did. We did. It would have been schlock. You know, but but some of these things, like again, I go back to the Bob Seger thing with Little Drummer Boy. You know, that or you know, even if you think about uh, you know David Bowie and and Bing Crosby doing Little Drummer Boy, that's another great version that isn't the typical, you know, pum pum pum. I mean, you know, with the with the drum in the background type of a thing. It's oh. you know, there's, so there's a good story to that one uh, that uh, when. When Bowie was on set and that they came to him and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. He's like, I'm not gonna, I don't want to sing that song. And so it ended up that literally the, 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 his part, that counter, the Peace on Earth counterpoint was written on the spot uh, in, 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 a few, in a few hours as a way of solving the problem of Bowie didn't want to sing Little Drummer Boy and this is what they had planned on. And uh, so, it, that's the, my wife's favorite song. Should I ruin it for when I? 
when she listens to the podcast, she'll know. Yeah. She'll get her ready. No, I'll ruin it for her. So. <laughs> so much of this is a- a- applicable to Star Wars. I mean, we talk about cash grabs versus artistic, you know, merit, uh, you know, and, and how those things can coexist. And um, one of the things that I wanted to briefly circle back to, and I know we're running short on time here, but um, you talked about how when you're evaluating a song, you're looking at it for either just um, somebody's just like sheer talent shining through um, an ability and just technical expertise um, versus creativity. And I was curious if there were any artists for you that sort of like jumped out for you in terms of that creativeness. I think you'd mentioned Phil Spector and some of his arrangements being hugely influential. Um, Obviously he was involved with the Ronettes, I think. Yeah. Um, And a lot of their music was just like, Whoa, Whoa. Yeah. This is so much different. So different than what came before. Um, I don't know. Are there other? Are there some other artists or that 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 or, or rangers that you you can think of off the top of your head that people should think about as being like pioneers in this in this way? David Seville. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, 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 wait! Oh man, I'm trying to. I, I thought I had David Seville reference here. I'm trying to, but I'm, I'm missing it. I, I can't. <laughs> No, I, I had. Uh, you can take a second too, because we can edit this out, and that's fine. I still want a <laughs> Dang it! No, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass that. As like as much as I want to, I think there's an Alan Jackson Christmas song with a uh, with the uh, with Chipmunks, but I I'm not positive. I had to go back and relook, and I'd like, I like I don't want to go go hunting for Alan Jackson records right now. Um, the uh, I mean, the Phil Spector, I think, is one of the handful of great Christmas, truly great Christmas albums. I mean, one that uh, Darlene Loves, um, uh, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home, is also on, from that album. Uh, um, U2's cover of that is is a good one as well. Yeah, I agree. Sorry. Yep, nope, Sorry. I hear you. Um, I'll tell you, the other record that is, again, one of those that people love and people should love because it is so awesome and so uh, sort of... Uh, so influential is the theme to the is the soundtrack to the Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, mm. That that's one where you think about. First off, that record uh, introduced almost all children to jazz. Yeah. Um, whenever whenever kids first get to it, they're getting to coming to it as jazz. I mean, that's their first time. And over the course of uh, you know three years of doing the podcast and interviewing people about Christmas music. I routinely found how many people found that to be influential. Uh, I, I interviewed a pianist, uh, George Winston, and he talked about uh, New Orleans uh, piano players, particularly Professor Longhair and James Booker and Vince Guaraldi as being kind of his personal big three. Uh, and I also interviewed uh, Stephen Drozd from Flaming Lips Um and he did an album, they did an album, he's a big part of it, called um, Under the Name Imogene Peace. And the album's called uh, Atlas, Atlas Eats Christmas, or if you kind of re- rephrase it, At Last It's Christmas. And 
and and for the whole thing, he said it started off as a project inspired by Vince Guaraldi to learn how to reharmonize songs. And so it was taking Christmas songs and then reharmonizing them. And then kind of he and Wayne Coyne like filter put them through the flaming lips weirderizer and made them stranger. But over and over I found hit that record talks to so many different people at so many different levels. Um found this lovely uh, folk duo uh, from uh, Appalachia called um, Lowland Hum. And they do this absolutely gorgeous um, version that is so quiet and so intimate that it is like literally they're sitting, uh, you're just on the, on the sofa away from you and playing just loud enough for you to hear it. And it is so personal uh, and it clearly resonated for them. And so that's one of those, again, it's a record that you know because you know you hear that music every year. But if you actually stop and dig in, there's so much going on in there and there's so much smart in there and so much about what we hear, the Christmas music we hear now takes cues uh, from, from that album. Now, first of all, when I was a band director in Nebraska, uh, my percussion ensemble did uh, an arrangement of Christmas Time is here. Excellent. And when you when you hear that on marimbas and vibraphone it, and bell, it's just it's it's magical. Uh, one thing, and I know you said we're running low, slow on low on time, but I do want I do want to get your take on this because again, I'm from uh, originally from Nebraska, and so is this next bit. We have not talked about Mannheim Steamroller, which. I mean, really, I think Chip Davis, it, it now it seems kind of hokey. And if he does anything new, it kind of seems like he's rehashing his old stuff. But when those first Christmas albums came out, it turned, I think, everything on its head. It was like it was a breath of <laughs> fresh air. <laughs> I didn't mean that yeah. pun to come yeah. out, but it came out. But it was it was I mean, it used the use of traditional instruments, the, you know, you know, and everything, um, by the way, if you ever yeah. see them live, you're not really, it's kind of an awful mm-hmm. concert, but anyway, um, what do you, what do you think about the well, Mannheim Steamroller? I have to say, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I actually, uh, just, uh, last week of the week ago, I posted my interview with Chip Davis. I interviewed, oh, right I interviewed Chip for, um, and, uh, and it was really, and Mannheim Steamroller is sometimes my thing, sometimes not. Um, mm-hmm. But the, uh, you know, but I give Chip so much credit because first off, he, you know, that that's 1984 is the, uh, the Christmas album and same year as last Christmas, same year as, uh, band-aids, do they know it's Christmas after all? And, you know, and it was, and he made that with, with, you know, as a band that that completely fell through the cracks, it had a lot of classical but it was not so classical. The classical music people were on them. And that it was- had rock elements, but not so much that the rock press cared. And it was accessible, but uh, made it accessible to a lot of people. Yeah. And, yeah. and one thing I thought was really interesting, I didn't know this, and he was saying that where he really found his audience was through, uh, through, stereo, through stereo stores because the record was made so pristinely that it became something that, rec- that stereo stores would use to demonstrate music. And then, and people would like, I, you know, oh, 
not only does it, my not only do I want this stereo, but that record sounds pretty great. And uh, so, but I got to say, I really enjoyed the conversation. And one of the things that he and I talked about some, because it's the part that kind of interested me musically most, was I talked about the electronic side. And thinking about in 19, you know, is, when, you know he's, the album was 84, the Fresh Air records came out in the early or beginning of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so he, when he's learning, he's learning in the late 70s. And he was, for instance, thinking about uh, Walter Carlos at the time, now Wendy Carlos, who, who made Switched On Bach and kind of was the first person to introduce the idea of electronic classical music. And we started talking about the electronic side and talking about people like Vangelis, who were influences on his thinking about electronic music. And, um, and one that made total sense when he said it, I did, I'd never thought about it before, but the other thing that was a big influence on him was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Sure. And okay. Yeah. When once you once you hear it's like, yeah. I guess because they were never my thing, I didn't. I, I never. I never think about anything being influenced by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But as soon as he <laughs> said it, and I'm I like, hear, Duh. I hear Carnival Nine. Yeah, I hear and, that keyboard in Carnival Nine. Sure. And and the mo- and when I put the show when I, was, when I was producing the episode, that after he said that, I put in. Uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's version of uh, Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man. And it's like, yeah, of course. This is like so exactly where he's coming from. So, uh, but, so, know, but I, give, I give him so much respect uh, and what, for what creating that. What I was talking about earlier that, you know, you think his version of Deck the Halls, mm-hmm. where, I mean, it's like he, he it's, it's still Deck the Halls, but it's a totally different rhythm yep. in the melody. And he puts it in the Mixolydian mode, so you get that flat seven, you know, bump, 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 and it's just like that makes you go, "This is different. Yeah. It's the same, but it's different." It, so he again, he he took some risks on a lot of these things, but it 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 like I said, it gave a breath of again fresh air to oh. to to some of these Christmas songs that we'd all been singing in school. Yeah. That reminds me of a great story from my, actually from my first episode. First episode was with. Uh, ben Shank of uh, Panorama Brass Band here in New Orleans, and they have a Panorama has a version of uh, "God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen" that he did as a street parade song, and and I asked where that came from, and it turned out he said uh, he was on vacation in I, I think Ireland, but he's on vacation in in England somewhere, and all he, and all he brought with him was a harmonica. And so at one point he kind of broke it out. It's like started thinking about Christmas songs and realized like God rest you merry gentlemen is in a minor key. And so he had to transpose it to a major key to make it work. And it suddenly became, he became so bright and so cheerful that it sounded all he could think of was like old, uh, like old uh, animated car, old cartoons with dancing mice. And, uh, <laughs> and then once he had that vision, then he went ahead and thought to go ahead and put a uh, put a street be uh, uh, you know a street uh, a second line beat on it, and it's a great version. And but that kind of trans you know, and I've heard a number of people who've done the same alternate thing, who've taken it from major keys to minor keys to you know to add some add some melancholy. But yes, the, the those those kind of musical changes are a big part of how people end up tweaking these songs to try to give them some kind of fresh life. 
Well, Alex, this was an awesome conversation. Uh, Tell people, remind them where they can find you and your podcast, find you online and stuff like that. That I am at myspilt with a T, milk.com. And you can find the podcast at, the podcast is 12 Songs of Christmas. And I am on pretty much all the major platforms, um, Spotify, Apple, uh, Google, Stitcher, Pandora, whatever. So that's, uh, and I'm out there about, about weekly. And uh, this is my busy season, obviously. So I just had, had uh, Mannheim Steamroller just last week. And I, I've got so I got a bunch of cool, got actually uh, a bunch of cool stuff coming up that I've got a bunch of interviews I'm really happy with. And so looking forward to uh, getting these out in the world. My, my Mannheim Steamroller story is that when I was student teaching, the son of Mannheim Steamroller's percussionist, Chuck Pennington, who I believe Chuck Pennington may have, no, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even going to take a step there. But anyway, his son was in, was a sophomore in the band when I was student teaching. And now his son is actually the drummer for Mannheim Steamroller. Yeah. Wow. Good for him. Logan, Logan Pennington. So yeah, it's, but, uh, yeah, I, I find that stuff so interesting. Like, you know, Chip retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up having neck surgery, and so he so he can't perform anymore. And so the idea now, I love this idea that there's a that not only is there a band going off without the person who founded it, but there's two bands going off. That that there's such demand that that during the season there are two bands, Manheim, two versions of Mannheim Steamroller touring the country so they can co- cover as much of the country as possible and cover the need. They're playing New Orleans on December 23rd, uh, incidentally. But I love there's two bands going on under the name Mannheim yeah. Steamroller, neither of which feature the one guy who is the one constant in Mannheim Steamroller. Yeah. Okay, quick question before we go. Trans-Siberian Orchestra, do you have an opinion? I, I am completely fascinated by Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I've interviewed them twice. Uh, and Al, Patrol, Al Petrelli was a really good interview, by the way. Uh, it's such a fascinating thing. I, I, it does not say Christmas to me. Uh, I, but I, I give them, I give them a, a lot of credit because first off, anything that can mobilize twelve or so thousand people on a regular basis to come out and see you—that's a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And like I realize, for me that I consider sort of the intimacy of Christmas a big part of Christmas. And so the idea of like the big arena rock Christmas music, that rarely sounds like Christmas to me. But I also realize that, you know, like when I, when I talked to Al Petrelli, Petrelli about this, he was saying, you know, this question didn't make any sense to him because simply he has been making rock music and big, loud arena rock music for so long that the whether the story is shouted or sung at a more human in a more human way, and whether the instruments are you know are made to be listened to in a normal sized room or made to be listened to in an arena, he didn't think in those terms. That it was a it was a human story. Therefore, it's a you know therefore it's a human story, or and it's, therefore it's Christmassy, and and it's very clear that in that when you're in the room. A whole lot of people are really connecting to it. And so since 
I, you know, it, that music sounds too big to be kind of Christmassy to me, but uh, that may just be, it, it speaks a language I don't. Um, and so, uh, and, and I, and I, and I like, I love the show is hysterical. Have you seen it? Have you seen it, David? That's on my bucket list. I've never been, and I just I find it so fascinating. Like for the same reasons you just outlined, which is just like it just seems sort of like counterintuitive. Yeah, it, it is. But I've enjoyed it. Did you know? Yeah, yeah. and I enjoy it when it comes on the radio because it like such a departure from what you're listening to. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I'm awake now. It is driving your car. You're like, oh, wait, it's it's, it's I'm a, awake. It's a state of the art show. Uh, I the first time I saw it, it was like, like like the stage was a transformer about that that <laughs> that could actually attack the band at any moment, uh, and you have like the lighting rigs, sort of move and adjust and can re, re, reconfigure themselves. You have all variety of fire from flame towers to spark showers to like she you know like sheets of flame and so it is everything every pyrotechnic you can manage it's all there the stage completely takes itself apart and puts itself back together again uh one one time when i interviewed him i've interviewed him twice at the one time one time we talked and he was saying that the band rehearses while the uh, while the stage itself is being made, and then there's about a week where they have to rehearse on the stage, and they have to know where things are because if they're not paying attention, the stage will reconfigure, and you can easily end up like falling into a uh, falling into a flash pot or something. And so you need to know what the stage is going to do during this point of the song. It's like that's intense. I'm not sure that's Christmas, but that's intense. <laughs> well, Alex, so you, get, you get war in October and exactly. <laughs> just need uh, something in the middle for Thanksgiving. Well, this has been awesome. And I want to continue the conversation sometime like, like over a beer or something, because I think Absolutely. I just have to pick your brain on so many things. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, and everybody, thank you for, uh, uh, I guess putting up with us on this diversion from Star Wars, but this was an awesome conversation. Um, and I hope to have you again sometime. We can talk about stuff like this again. So, Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. This has been totally fun. And until next week, everybody, we will say who dat, who dat? Who dat? and uh, hope, hopefully we will, uh, what well, we're a point and a half underdog with the Eagles right Eagles. now. Hopefully we'll, We'll beat that spread. So um, we'll see you on the flip side. Everybody have a good week. All right. Now I've stopped recording. I can tell you my, I, I didn't want to ruin Mannheim steamroller for everybody. <laughs>